You're listening to a podcast presentation of Hillside Foursquare Church in Reno, Nevada. We are in Acts chapter 8 today, and it's interesting as we go through this, we get to see over and over again these kind of big picture of what's happening with the church, and then in particular stories. And so we hear at the beginning of Acts chapter 8 where a great persecution arises right after the, the murder of the disciple named Stephen, and the disciples, all of them throughout the region, except for the apostles, are scattered throughout Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And everywhere they go, they are declaring the gospel good news. So they're on the run, they're fearing for their lives, but they're still declaring the message of the gospel. And this is something that Jesus said, no matter what you're doing, where you're going, this message is one of hope that you get to carry with you. So Today, we get to hear about another one of the seven men who was appointed in the book of Acts chapter 6 when uh, there was a a schism that arose between the Greek-speaking Jews and the Hebrew-speaking Jews. And the Greek-speaking Jews had come forward and said, our widows are being neglected in the daily handing out of food. And so the disciples or the apostles said, we can't go back to waiting tables. We're we're now responsible for carrying out the life and, and service within the church and the teaching aspect of it. So I want you to choose seven men who are full of the Holy Spirit, full of wisdom, to be the ones who administrate this. And we see in Acts 6 that seven men are chosen. The first two that are mentioned are Stephen and Philip. The rest of them are all Greek-speaking Jewish guys who then are then responsible for the handing out of food to both the Hebrew and the Greek-speaking widows. And we never hear about the other five guys that are mentioned here. We hear about Stephen. Today we're going to hear a little bit about Philip and also next week. But we don't hear about the other five guys. And does that mean that the other five guys were just kind of like an oops? I'm thankful that it's not. Because over and over again, there are people who are named in Scripture that we never hear anything about. You know where Charles Schultz got the idea for the, the character carrying the blanket? What was his name? Linus. Linus is in the Bible. Did you know this? It's true. The name Linus is in the Bible. I get, just look for it, Okay. There's other places. There's a woman whose name is Dorcas. Who doesn't name their kid Dorcas anymore? Okay, it means gazelle. You know, maybe it loses something in translation. But there's there's names that we see in Scripture. Just because we hear about them and we don't hear a ton more, we hear that it doesn't mean that there's not something significant that's happened. The disciple who replaced Judas was a guy named Matthias. And I've heard people teach, well, nothing else was ever said about Matthias, so obviously that was a mistake. No, we can't argue from silence simply because the scripture is telling a specific story because there are so many nameless men and women that are, are, throw, are mentioned to us in Hebrews chapter 10 that those who have gone before us, who have lived the example that is held up in front of us. And regardless, um, I, I've also heard it said that our job as people who belong to Jesus is to go to burn brightly for him and then to die in anonymity. We're not leaving a legacy, the legacy of Louis, the legacy of whatever your name happens to be. Do we want our families to remember us for good? Yes. But the legacy we leave is actually a heritage of inviting people to follow us as we follow Christ. It's being people who are dedicated to living for Christ for the cause of Christ. It's not about us. And one of the things that we have that's a part of our American culture is we turn stories about broken men and women who God used and we turn them into heroes of the Bible. The reason they were chosen and they're talked about is because they were so messed up and broken and God used them anyway. 
we hear about Joshua who did these great things for God. And how, he, and how we hear about Gideon who did these great things for God. And Samson who was empowered by God. You look into their character. Gideon was, a, a, he was of the weakest clan and he was the weakest dude in his family. When it was time for him to be threshing his wheat, he went and hid in a place where no one would see him because he was afraid he's going to get his butt kicked. Beat up, sorry, Mom. Um, and then when it, it just weird. I mean, people, Samson was a guy, he shows up in a town, and the first thing he does is he looks for the prostitutes. Seriously. And it's like, this, is a man after, this isn't a man after God's own heart. This is a man who God uses in spite of his brokenness. And he constantly, I mean, his life ends in ruin because of his sin, but God still was able to redeem him. We look at people like Moses. Well, Moses was a great man. It says Moses was the most humble man we know, most humble man on earth. Moses was a guy who was the most reliant upon God. His own brother and sister said, you are nothing special. We hear God just as much as you. Why do you get to lead? We should be leading. Moses disqualified himself before God saying, I don't, I, I don't, I don't talk so good. I have, a, I, I have problems stuttering. I, I can't do it. And God says, fine, you, you won't do it. I'll work with your brother. You, I'll talk to you. You talk to him. He'll talk to Pharaoh. Okay, problem solved. Moses, at some point between the promised land and, or from Egypt and the promised land, gets separated from his wife, Zipporah. We don't know what, in, and they reconciled and everything was... All we know is they had a massive break where as Moses is telling everybody in the company of Israelites, you need to get circumcised. He didn't circumcise his own kids. And so it says, and God came to kill him. And Zipporah, I mean, this is the weird part. She goes and she sacrifices, she she doesn't sacrifice, she circumcises her sons, which they were really excited about. And she takes their foreskins and throws them at him. You are a bridegroom of blood. And in some translations, it says, and she threw them at Moses' member. And my son Johnny says, Dad, he's probably eight, Dad, what's a member? And I explained that to him. And he said, so I have another question. He'd heard us announcing we have an annual meeting of the members. (laughs) It's like, you can't make this stuff up. I said, it means different things. So there's a lot of really interesting things in the scriptures, and we don't need to disregard those men and women who've gone before us, but we can look at them, and they're just like us. They're flawed. They're broken, and yet God used them over and over again. In this situation, we're hearing about Philip. We're going to start in Acts chapter chapter 8, verses 4 through 8. It says this, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. And when they heard him and saw the signs that he did, for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in the city. Matthew chapter 10 Jesus sends out his disciples two by two, and it says he gave them the authority to declare the message of the gospel, but also he gave them authority over those who were oppressed by evil spirits. I'm not going to get into the details on what makes somebody oppressed versus possessed. I personally don't believe possession is something that takes place 
where a person is completely lost if they're uh, overcome by an evil spirit, what we see in scripture is that even those who are severely oppressed still have a bit of their own will. I think it's out of God's goodness. Uh, in the situation we hear about the, the demoniacs or the people who are oppressed in the gathering area, they come running to Jesus. If they were truly completely oppressed, they're not going to come running to Jesus. They're going to run away from him because Jesus has full authority over them. And Jesus, when he's interacting and casting these demons out away from this man, he asks, you know, what's your name? And the demons answer. Jesus is not trying to create a theology where when we're dealing with the demoniac or dealing with evil spirits or we try and get their names, he's talking to the man. The evil spirits jump in and Jesus says, nope, you're not going to do this and cast them out. I believe that if a person is oppressed by the enemy, then there's something where when the Holy Spirit encounters that individual, there is a conflict, there is a power encounter that takes place. And it's important to keep in mind that when we're dealing with the idea of the power of God versus the power of darkness, these are not a yin and yang situation. This is not a Zoroastrian where there's equal good, equal evil that are battling. God is the creator above all, in, th- in whom all things were made, in wh- whom all things exist. The evil one is created. He does not know everything. He is not everywhere. He is not all-powerful. If he was, had half uh, of the ability that he thinks he does, he would never have had Jesus killed through which we have redemption and salvation and through which his own demise is secured. Okay? He's far beyond us. Martin Luther wrote the, song, wrote the song, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And there's a phrase in there that talks about the enemy who opposes us. It says, on earth there is none his equal. And that is true. But we do not face the enemy or, or the principalities and powers in our own strength. We are called to face them in the power of God and in the power of his might and in the name of Jesus by the blood of the lamb who has overcome him. And in that, Jesus, is, or Jesus even said through the apostle Paul that God will soon crush Satan under your feet. And he uses us to bring the reconciliation and the reconnecting of humanity to God and the rescue of people from dark to light and from death to life. And he uses us as ministers of that. And when he sends his disciples, us, to declare the message of the gospel, we're basically saying there is a way for life, there's a way for deliverance, there's a way for salvation, there's a way for hope, there's a way for you to be free. And the kingdom of darkness does not go quietly. And yet as Philip here is declaring the message of the gospel, these evil spirits cannot stand against the authority and the power given to Philip in Jesus' name. Philip is nothing except he's known by Jesus. And when Philip comes against these things in Jesus' name, they have no choice but to leave. And freedom comes. And it's no, uh, it's no accident that it says, and there is great joy in that city. One of the byproducts of the gospel being preached, of the gospel good news, is joy replaces that which was before one of the things that happens when we come to God, and that can be for the first time or it can be when we come to him in repentance, is there is a replacement. Isaiah chapter, I think it's 40, talks about how he gives us the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. He gives us the oil of joy for mourning. He gives us an exchange where he takes that which is lost and broken and destroyed, and he gives us something in return. When I was a kid, my parents bought me a big a green machine, which if you ever wrote a green machine, now green machine is like this little uh, vegetable fruit drink. <laughs> but back in the day, green machine was like the best, most souped up big wheel. It didn't just have, you know, the, the, the uh, steering wheel on it. It also had shifting gears and it was awesome. And I, my dad had a, I think it was a BMW 2002 parked in the driveway. So I parked my green machine right next to it. 
and someone stole it. Yeah. And they left the most ratty, dirty, torn up big wheel you've ever seen. Like here, here's your exchange. Adam shakes his head in the back. Yeah, you get it. That was my first ride that got stolen. I can remember going out there and looking at it and thinking, what can we do? And we went door to door trying to find it. God does the opposite. He takes that ratty old big wheel that's torn up, the wheels kind of cracked in half and falling apart, and you try to ride and you're pulling to the left constantly, so you develop a bicep the size of Kentucky on this side. <laughs> kind of like the guy in the lady in the water who only works out one bicep over and over again. And God gives us something we did not deserve, we did not earn, according to his grace. That's the gospel good, mess- that's the gospel good news. And there's great joy in the city. Those who have been held and bound, believing that this is all there is, there's nothing better, there's never ever going to improve, get confronted with the gospel of Jesus Christ that says, actually, I can do more. Immediately, we often look to what's the physical need? Where's the person who's blind or lame or sick? And God meets those needs, but our greatest need is the need for forgiveness, the need for transformation, the need for being made new, the need for restoration of relationships, that which has been broken to be brought back together, that which has been lost to be found. If you are in a situation right now where you have people in your life, I'm just gonna throw it out, the people who you are related to, family, brothers, sisters, moms, dads, and there is separation, and you can't even begin to think, how could this ever come back together? Let me tell you, Jesus specializes in healing the impossible. And if that's you without not wanting to embarrass you, let's just bow our heads for a second. If, if that speaks to you, you're in a situation of brokenness and loss in the, in the situation with family relationships, I just would invite you to lift up your hands to the Lord. Sign is saying, that's me. And Lord, as you see hands up around this room, all over the place, we commit our family members to you and we commit ourselves to you as well. I pray that you would do a restorative work. That you would turn the hearts of the kids to their parents and the parents to their kids. You turn the hearts of brothers back to their, their siblings and the sisters to their siblings and the siblings to their siblings, Lord Jesus. I pray, Lord, that you would cause the grandkids to look to their grandparents and grandparents to look to their grandkids in wholeness and righteousness and, and wholeness in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 75% of the people in this room have their hand up. 75%. You are not suffering by yourself. Jesus specializes in this thing. Don't, don't hesitate. Don't worry. Don't give up hope. He will meet you there. In the middle of this big picture of the great joy and deliverance and healings and the lame are are walking and the sick are healed, we go to a specific story. Verse 9. There was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he'd amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip, and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. This specific story, you may have heard him referred to, this guy named Simon, as Simon the Samaritan, Simon Magus, Simon the Wise. Uh, In some ways, he's known as Simon the Sorcerer, Simon the Astrologer. The word for his name 
comes from the same word that was used for the three wise men that come to see Jesus. The magi, that's the plural of the word magus. And so Simon the magician. Some people teach that he was kind of like a David Copperfield kind of a guy. Wore black, super flashy, married to a supermodel. That, no, I don't know about that part. But he was, they thought he was just kind of a charlatan. The scriptures and also the church history that comes after this tells us that he was someone who was fully immersed in the dark arts. He was empowered by a spiritual power other than God. Throughout the scriptures, we're told not to mess with the spiritual world apart from going through Christ because those spirits are motivated by something other than Jesus and ultimately will lead towards our destruction, towards enslaving us, towards wrapping us in bondage. Simon the magician calls himself someone great. Matter of fact, his, his title that he gave himself was Hamegas Dunamas Theos, which means the great power of God. He was teaching that he was the, the physical incarnation of God, a father to people, and that he was to bring a power that would allow them to experience a salvation that could only come through him. And so people were amazed because the things that he did were not like pulling rabbits out of his hat, but he did miraculous signs and wonders with a message that didn't match up with anything remotely close to the gospel. This is why it's important for us to always compare the message to the signs and wonders and miracles because we have an enemy who has power, who is able to do things. We look at in the, in the book of Exodus where Moses is trying to show Pharaoh why he needs to let God's people go and he's doing these miraculous signs and it says over and over again, Pharaoh's magicians were able to duplicate many of those signs. How could they do that? By using the power of darkness. It's real, but it's destructive. Okay, so in this situation, Simon sees what's going on. He sees Philip declaring the message of the gospel. He sees people becoming healed. He sees people becoming restored, and people are getting baptized. And those people who had been originally amazed with Simon are now amazed with Philip and the message of the gospel, even to the point where Simon's like, I'm in. I'll go along with it. And we're going to get to this in just a second, but how this scripture portrays it, it's almost like Simon is just a bumbler who's trying to figure things out and kind of well-intentioned, but the, the early church tradition does not teach that about him at all. Uh, in first century, especially first century power and magic, people who were practitioners of magic or the occult, or the occult is, is a word that means the hidden things, they utilized uh, contact with the spiritual world in order to accomplish what they wanted to see accomplished, to kind of twist the spirit's arms to do miraculous signs. If a person wanted to make another person fall in love with them, they'd go pay this, this sorcerer to say these words and do this thing and maybe take a lock of their hair and throw it into a tea and drink it, and then that person would fall in love with them. This is something that was continuing up and through the, the Middle Ages, one of the things that brought about the Spanish Inquisition in, in Latin America was the perpetuation of these love curses and this, this low level flying under the radar under the level of the, of the Christian and Catholic Church uh, flying underneath that and trying to offer an alternative way to prayer. It's something that can infiltrate our prayers if we think that, okay, if I just do this, then God has to do this. If I pray and fast for three days, then God must do these things. That's witchcraft. That's thinking there's a quid pro quo, something I'm going to get this for that. If I just do this, then God will do this. We cannot twist God's arm. 
We cannot go through certain steps to ensure that something's going to happen. What we can do is submit ourselves to God, humble ourselves before him, and entrust ourselves to him, and then present our request to him and ask that he would act on our behalf according to his will, not according to ours. Does that make sense? Okay. I know this is going fast. Several times in the book of Acts, Acts 13, Acts 16, Acts 19, we see specific situations, and a couple of them, in Acts chapter 13, there's a guy named Elemis, or he calls himself Bar-Jesus, which basically means, Bar means son of, so he's referring to himself as the son of Jesus, and that he's, he's a magician who is known for doing miraculous things. And when the Apostle Paul shows up and begins to declare the message of the gospel in that city, Bar-Jesus goes and says, don't listen to him. He has no power. And, and Saul, or Paul says to him, you know, you're a son of the devil. And, you know, you're trying to blind the eyes of this man. For, for a time, you're going to be blind. And it says, and God struck him with blindness for a few days. And the proconsul who he was witnessing to immediately became a Christian. It was a power encounter. This power of darkness trying to cover the eyes of this individual who God's drawing to himself. And God ends up using Paul to say, you're going to be blind. And then that striking him blind, the proconsul's convinced this power is greater than this power. There's another place in Acts chapter 16 where Paul and Silas are traveling throughout the, the city of Philippi and they're declaring the message of the gospel. And there's a little girl who's a fortune teller and she travels behind them. And even though she's small, it says she is... Uh, oppressed by a Pythian spirit or a Python spirit, a spirit of great power in that region. And as she is following after them, I can still hear the Ethel Barrett record playing. You know, these men are servants of the Most High God. They are here to tell you the message of salvation through Jesus Christ. And I was a kid, I used to think, well, who wouldn't want this girl you know, being their heralds, you know, shouting. And it got to a point where it's like, it's mocking, it's antagonistic. And it says, after a few days, Paul got so ticked, he turned around and says, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you, spirit, to come out of her. And it says, and the spirit left her at that moment. And that little girl's, that little fortune teller who was a slave, her masters realized that there was no longer any profit to be gained from her, that she was now worthless to them. So they grabbed Paul and Silas and took him before the magistrates and had him beaten and thrown into jail. It was an encounter in the spirit that manifested in the physical. There's another section in Acts chapter 19. We're going to get to all these later on. But in Acts 19, the church is gathered, and there comes a point where God brings conviction to the people of the church. And they're realizing that they're following after God, but they're also holding on to their horoscopes. They're holding on to their fortune tellers. They're holding on to their astrology. They're holding on to their special potions. They're holding on to their incantations. They realized when they had a problem, they would often go to a, a healer or someone who was a magician, and they would say, do you have any special names of a spirit that I can call upon that will help me to defeat the names of those who are oppressing or attacking me, that are keeping me from getting what I, what I want? And they would pay money to these magicians to get these magical incantations with the name of a particular spirit on it. And they would hold it and say, in the name of such and such spirit, I declare that this now is mine because you have to let it go because this spirit's more powerful. And when Paul comes and he's declaring to the church at Ephesus that the name of Jesus Christ is the name above every name, he's addressing this first century power and magic issue. He's saying it doesn't matter what other name you have, all the money you want to spend, all the magic books you want to have, all the sorcery you want to do. There is a name that is above every name. You just need to know him and be known. And at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that he's Lord. This is talking about physical, but also the spiritual. It says the church that day burned 50,000 
day's wages worth of magic stuff. It wasn't the people who didn't know Jesus. It was the Christians who'd been hedging their bets who were convicted. And they burned that up. Power encounters, darkness and light. Don't think that this was something where it was just like people dabbling or people you know, p- you know, doing party tricks. This is legit dabbling in darkness. If we have been, had involvement in Ouija boards and in astrology and in fortune telling and in divination and in, in spells, the only way to come to freedom is to renounce that and to speak the blood of Jesus over that, to turn away from the darkness and turn to light. And if you've ever been in a situation where may have been innocent, you may have been, I could, I, where it usually would pop up, is it a sleepover somewhere? And someone want, goes and grabs a Ouija board out of, the, out of the closet and says, we want to play with this. And you may not want to, you may feel sick to your stomach. And yet as it, people are doing it, you start to see, they're moving the little pointer and they're spilling out stuff. And just, oh, it's just fun and games. But realizing when you go that there's something that is attached to that, to antagonize and to bring deception. There's other places where there's so many ways we can invite darkness into our life without even thinking about it. And the whole point is not to make us afraid. The whole point is to turn us towards Jesus Christ as the one who brings deliverance and the one who brings wholeness. Let's just uh, uh, take a second, bow our heads. We believe that the, the name of Jesus and the blood of Jesus is so powerful that when we repent, they cover over and they break the ties that have been established. And if, if you have been someone who has dabbled in that, dabbled in any of the occult, any of the hidden things, any of the things that I have mentioned with astrology or fortune telling or divination or Ouija boards or any of that stuff, I just want to invite you to lift up your hands and say, Lord, I want to be free. I want, that, I want to be done with those things. Lord, I am not under the sign of those things. I'm under the sign of the cross. Lord, with, you see hands up. You see people raising their hands. I pray for your freedom to come right now in Jesus' name. I pray that every curse, everything the enemy would want to speak against these, not just them, but their children and their children's children, would declare by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of the testimony, Lord Jesus, that they are free and that they will overcome. Pray for deliverance, for freedom, for wholeness, in Jesus' name. I pray where there has been family members who have been engaged in Freemasonry and in cursing in that regard, Lord, that those curses would be broken even to every single level. And Lord, that we thank you that who you set free is free indeed, and that we do not belong to anyone except to you, bought by your blood, made free by you in Jesus' name. Amen. You can put your hands down. If you raised your hands, there may be, you may feel like you need afterwards to get more prayer. Um, I happen to know my mom and dad are going to be praying on the prayer team back by the trellis today. Just go back there and say, hey, I raised my hand about freedom. Will you pray for a blessing over me? Pray freedom over me. Get that sealed. By sealed, I mean it's kind of like after you, uh, what do you, when you take a wooden floor and you sand it down and then you've got to come in and you polish it and then you put a nice sealant over the top to protect it. The Holy Spirit comes as a seal of protection and as also a seal that we belong to him. Not seal like, but seal, okay? Get me? Okay. I just want you to track with me. You won't forget that. I want the seal, but not the seal. Acts 8, 14. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them to Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. 
Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Hey, give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord, that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you've said will come upon me. And when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many, many villages of the Samaritans. Now, what's the big deal? This is one of those interesting times in church history where we see something happen that I don't believe happens anymore. And what that was is up until this point, God had chosen to allow only the apostles to lay their hands on or to be preaching a message of the gospel to see people receive the Holy Spirit. We believe that now any person who calls upon the name of the Lord Jesus, any person who is a Christian can pray for another to receive the Holy Spirit. But at this time, it was not happening. It was only with the apostles. And so as the church spreads to Samaria, they hear of all the salvations that are happening and the water baptisms that are taking place. And so a delegation of apostles goes there, Peter, James, and John, to confirm what's happening with the Samaritans. Can anybody remember something that might be going on between Jews and Samaritans that could lead towards anything schismatic, troubling, or anything like that? They hate each other. My guess, this is not a, and thus says the Lord, but my guess that in this situation, God used the apostles to bring confirmation through Holy Spirit baptism of what salvation was available because up until this point, the Jews who became Christians may not have believed that the Samaritans could become Christians as well because they did not serve the same God. They didn't go to the same temple. Remember the, the lady who had, was at the, the woman at the well in John chapter 4? She says to Jesus, are we supposed to worship in Jerusalem or at Mount Gerizim? You tell us, what's the right way to do this? And he says, there's going to come a day when people will worship me in spirit and in truth. In this situation, the apostles go and they verify, what's happening here is from God. And they lay their hands on people, Peter, James, and John, and the Holy Spirit fills them, and they began to uh, be filled with the Holy Spirit. They begin to have signs and wonders and miracles following with them as well. They begin to be able to speak in their spiritual language to God. They're filled with the Holy Spirit, and it's confirmed. Both Jews and Samaritans, same God. It needed to happen, and we're going to see a shifting and growing theology of who God is and what he does through the book of Acts as God drags the, the Jewish Christians kicking and screaming towards the point where they finally start receiving people like you and me, the non-Jews. I mean, the Samaritans were just half-breed Jews. Most of us would not be Jewish at all or reclaim our 9% on ancestry Ashkenazi Jew here. Thought I was an Indian. <laughs> For, for reals, talk about funny. That's serious. We, we were told we were, we were Cherokee. Grandma spent time on a reservation. Didn't mean anything. Get the results and it says you're Jewish. And it's like, wow, didn't see that coming. Shalom. So as we keep going, God's intention from the beginning is to bring salvation to all who would believe beginning with his chosen people, the Jewish people, all the way to Gentiles. In the book of Isaiah, in the course of from chapter 42 through chapter 60, there are four different instances where God says, I'm going to save the Jew, but I'm also calling the Gentiles as well. 
This is fulfilled in Luke chapter 2, verse 29 through 32, when Simeon comes in and sees Jesus, who's just been, been dedicated and named before God by his mom and dad. And he says, this is the one who was promised. This is the Messiah. You said I was going to be able to see him. And you know what they're going to do? They're going to bring a light to the Gentiles. He's going to bring salvation to all the world. And that's what Jesus is saying, and that's his, his disciples are like, but even them. So Jesus, through this revelation of scriptures, is bringing truth and helping people to understand their theology of who is God, what does he do, and how does he do it, to bring them to an understanding of that. Who can be saved? How are they saved? Well, they're going to have to keep Jewish law. There's a group of these guys later on that we're going to see, you know what? This whole message of the gospel you're preaching to these non-Jewish people is all fine and good, but there's a group of them that start to follow after wherever Paul goes, and they come in and say, I know Paul said you just got to believe and be baptized, be filled with the Holy Spirit. You got to get circumcised too. So here we go. And they bust out their flint knives like, who's, who's signing up? And there's, this is key to salvation. This came, the, the Gentiles are like, I'm all for Jesus, but I don't want to unnecessarily engage in this behavior. Seriously, do we have to become Jews in order to become Christians? Acts 15 addresses that. Power encounters. God's power in action through Philip, Peter, and John confronts Simon as he's watching others with a power he doesn't have. In those days, we can think, why would he go to him and offer him money? That's stupid. That's what you did if you were a magician, if you were a sorcerer. Somebody else has a, a magic connection somewhere. It's like, what's it going to cost me to get that? I need that. I love that. I want that. Peter confronts him and says, I see your heart. You say you believe in Jesus. What you've actually done is you've added the name of Jesus to your pantheon, to your syncretized, to your all mashed up. I'll use Jesus. That's a good name. What else you got? Simon Peter addresses Simon's heart saying, I recognize that your heart is in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. He ends by saying, Simon says, you know, pray that this won't happen. John the beloved, the disciple, the apostle John, had a disciple whose name was Polycarp. Polycarp had a disciple whose name was Irenaeus. Irenaeus wrote a book called Against Heresies. And in book one, chapter 23, One. Hey, so in this book against heresies that he wrote, uh, Irenaeus says Simon the Samaritan faked his faith in Christ in order to acquire what he called the apostles' magic secrets. And ultimately, he became the originator of many heresies, including the heresy of Gnosticism. He called himself the great power of God. He, called, he believed himself to be a father-like creator that created things from the power of his mind. And so from this point forward, he chose to attempt to combat the power of God and to deal with the power of God and to, to try to uh, oppose the teaching of the, of the apostles. And he offered up this idea called Gnosticism, which basically says you can attain a secret knowledge that will lead you to salvation and allow you to overcome this fallen material world. And this hidden knowledge is only available for people who are truly worthy of it and truly able to be initiated. He taught that the physical world is evil, that the flesh is evil, and only the spirit is not. 
and they taught that Jesus never came in the flesh, that he only came in the spirit, because if he'd come in the flesh, he would have been evil. This is why the early church fathers, we see in the book of John, we see in Peter, he says, well, we're talking about Jesus, we're talking about the one who we've seen, who we've touched, who we spent time with. This is who it was. We give personal testimony. Because there's a message that's going out that says it's Jesus didn't come in the flesh. He was just this ethereal spirit, and that's, that's what we all aim to be. And only a few have access to it. And Jesus says, no, he did come in the flesh. He did come, and he died and was resurrected. It's also why there's places where the Apostle Paul talks about Jesus coming and dying and being resurrected. And the, the Greeks say, you, you're a whack job. Everybody knows that that's not how it works. The spirit's where it's at. The flesh is, is nothing. We want to separate ourselves from this. God wants to redeem us. There's a phrase, kingdom ways and means, how God works and in what ways. There's patterns and practices that mark the advancement and the establishment of the kingdom of God. Even when we see people in the kingdom of God being persecuted and being scattered, God uses that to cause the kingdom of God to be spread as they preach wherever they go. One of the kingdom ways and means that we can know is a practice for us to lay a hold of is wherever we go, we're called to do what Jesus calls us to do. Not just when things are going our way, but whenever we're in a situation, we're on the run, we're in need. We may be in a spot at some point where we're running for our lives. We're running to our own Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. As we're going, may we carry a message in our mouth of the gospel good news and of a peace that goes beyond circumstance. When light invades dark. Jesus said, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. So as you go, wherever you go, Teach people to obey what I've said. Baptize people in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and I'll be with you wherever you're going. When you experience evil-spirited opposition with physical manifestations, oftentimes our great enemy, the devil, is going to show up, and it's going to be with a person at the forefront of that. You may hear stories of missionaries or people in Europe or people in Africa, and they experience great opposition. In Africa, it's usually through a witch doctor. In European situations, it's usually a person of great influence, an intellectual, a person who's looked at as being incredibly refined because the enemy works whatever culture he's in in the way that most people would grab or grab a hold of in that culture. Does that make sense? So it's like in Europe, where people would be much less open to an idea of spiritual encounters, though they're becoming more and more open and aware to those, it's going to be a much more logical, scientific, enlightened deception. In places we would call third world countries in the Far East, in Africa, you'd see people who are much more willing to embrace the power of the spiritual world, and it would be a much more overt opposition. Either way, our enemy is not the person. Our enemy is the devil. And when we go forward, we're not declaring messages against people. We're declaring a message of hope and life as we speak truth in the face of heresy, as we see the power of God moving instead of seeing areas where there's sorceries to encapture people's hearts and minds in darkness, as we see things that are, have been made twisted or perverted, which means twisted, to, to make those things straight and true recognizing we cannot earn or learn of our salvation. We can only receive it from Christ. How do we stand firm? Ephesians 6.10 tells us to be strong in the Lord and the power of his might and to pull on the form, put on the full armor of God, to hold fast to him, to hold fast to his message, to surround himself with his people and be being filled with the Holy Spirit. 
Acts 2.42 tells us we devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship with one another, to sharing common meals in the Lord's Supper, and to praying together. On a day-to-day basis, we avoid sin, we embrace repentance, we practice and extend grace, we forgive and love deeply and purely. This is what we do as the church, our big picture story and person to person. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your grace that goes beyond circumstance, goes beyond our understanding. I pray that you would speak to our hearts today. I thank you first and foremost that you're the one who brings freedom from darkness. And Lord, I pray that you would break the powers of darkness in, through, and around our lives. I pray that as we go home, if there's things that we're doing, if there's things that we have in our home that are renewing a practice or giving way to darkness, that you would eliminate those things. You would shine a bright light on those as things to be gotten rid of. Lord, I pray that you would cause us to turn our hearts towards you, to put our trust and our hope in you, that we not need to live to be afraid, but we can be filled with your confidence, Lord, as we go forward in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've never started a relationship with Jesus before, he says that anybody who calls upon his name and follows after him would be saved. In the Connect and Grow area, we've got some yes packets, and these are basically designed to help you know how do I start walking with Jesus. If you've never grabbed one and you would like to, we'd love to hook you up with one of those. A couple things to consider as we go. What stands out to you today from what you heard? When you think of spiritual warfare, what comes to mind? In the 90s, there was a book series, This Present Darkness and Piercing the Darkness, Frank Peretti. We think about, you know, these Steven Spielberg-like movies playing out in the heavenly realms. Oftentimes, spiritual warfare happens when we are confronted with choices that seem very normal and natural, but that actually lead to a path of darkness and destruction. And the best spiritual warfare we can do is live a holy life and to choose to be obedient to Jesus day to day. When you see Peter and Simon's confrontation, it's like two dudes having an argument. It happens all the time. It's a spiritual spiritual confrontation too. What do you see there? When I ask you, what does it look like for you lived out to carry out the kingdom of God every day? You know, it talked about some of the stuff of avoiding sin, embracing repentance. But what, what is God speaking to you about that? And how or where or in what way is God inviting you to share the gospel with the way that you live? These are all things for us to consider as we go forward because this is a message to be acted on. The message of the gospel is something that requires something of us, not as a a cost, but as a response. It's like, here, what then shall we do? And it's in front of every single one of us. As I mentioned, prayer is available right back here. And as you go, I want to bless you with this. May Jesus bless you and keep you. May Jesus make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May Jesus turn his face toward you and give you peace. God bless you. Have a great rest of your day. This has been a podcast presentation of Hillside Foursquare Church in Reno, Nevada. You can reach us via email at web at hillside4.org.